Welcome back to Next Wealth Insights. My name is Heather Hopkins, the founder and managing director of Next Wealth. Delighted to have you here for episode two of our second season of our podcast. We're going to be sharing a talk from Next Wealth Live. It's our CEO panel that kicked off the day thinking about business models and what the future might look for our industry. You'll be hearing from Patrick Thompson, the CEO. EMEA of JP Morgan Asset Management, Jackie Leeper, the CEO of Embark Group and the Managing Director of Lloyd's Banking Group, Neil Moles, the CEO of Progeny, and Richard Scarretts, who was then CEO of Scarretts and is now a NED with that business. The panel was moderated by my chairman, Peter Mann, um, who will be no stranger to listeners of the podcast. And after you hear the remarks from the panelists, I'm going to have a conversation with my colleague, Emma Napier, to reflect on what we heard. So enjoy and see you in a bit. Welcome, as, as a number of people have remarked already this morning, welcome to my annual suit wearing event. Um, and some rules before we start. Um, so this only works for me, uh, principally for me actually, but for my colleagues behind me, if you interact, right? If you remain silent during the remaining 45 minutes, 25 minutes of it will be cut out, right? Because we've got 20 minutes of introductions and then it's over to you or to me to pick up questions. Uh, in terms of how you interact, there are, there are three ways that you can interact. The first, I'm reliably informed there's a Slido um, mechanism of some kind that you can connect to. And the theory is that any questions that you've got will appear in front of me uh, on this thing here, and I may well ask them. The second is, for those of you who were here three years ago, you will remember this. Right? And this signifies, or the, the occupancy of this particular device signifies that you want to ask a question. So I'll pass it to Clive, and when somebody wants to ask a question, Clive will attempt to aim it at somebody. And third, most conventional, and most likely to be successful, is stick your hand up, right? <laughs> and, and, and I'll probably see you. Okay, so in selecting our panel members, uh, Heather and I, um, wanted to continue the theme of connectivity. But oft often one of the best ways to connect things efficiently and effectively is to deconstruct them at outset, and then hopefully at the end put them back together in a format that actually enhances the original connection that brought them together. So in thinking about how we would look at the theme that we want to give this, this group, we thought we would ask people from different sectors and different parts, sorry, different parts of what is called the value chain. I don't like the expression, but we have somebody from platform, somebody from a consolidator, somebody from an IFA, somebody from a fund management business. So theoretically, if you put those parts together, you should have a whole, right? So we will, we will go through the theme. The theme is I've asked each of the uh, participants to think about how they would, how their businesses can innovate and adapt to, to, come, to come up with a better solution or a different solution in five years' time. So each of the presentations, which will last for five minutes, or provocations, actually, rather than presentations, which will last for five minutes, is designed to be able to give you a, their view of how they see the future in their particular field. And then hopefully we'll bring it together Right. Now, I'm not going to introduce the people. They can do that for themselves. Um, so the first minute of each session, uh, each of the four sessions, will be an introduction of themselves and the business. So can I start by passing over to you, Richard? Yeah. <clears throat> Morning, everyone. Um, I'm Richard Skerritt from Skerritt's. Uh, we're the uh, IFA representatives today, although within the firm we do have, we do run funds, so we have the investment side. We kind of white label platforms, so I suppose we have that side as well. And um, we are acquirers, not quite in Neil's kind of uh, sphere, but uh, we do we do buy business as well. So uh, just a bit of background. I started the business back in 1990, um, so 33 years now. Obviously, seen quite a few changes during that time. And I think kind of the the main focus of what I want to say today is all about change. We've seen lots of change in our business. We've seen lots of change in the industry. And it kind of fits in nicely uh, with what Heather was saying about the kind of how the industry is going to change over the next five years. Um, 
We now run at, um, I think we have 25 advisors, we have seven officers, we run about two billion pounds of funds under management. And I suppose the biggest change for us was two years ago, we took an investment from a private equity company. And obviously private equity is the kind of you know, thing at the moment everyone's talking about, you know, buying into firms and helping firms kind of go to the next stage. So I think the biggest change we've seen there is you know, a massive change in the business, a big you know, change in the resources we have and how we run things. But I think, I suppose what gives me an insight in the industry is we have, we've spoken to, I'll probably speak to three or four companies a week where we're looking at you know, potentially acquiring their businesses. So I get to speak to a lot of the firms and kind of identify why they are talking to us. There's obviously a reason, there's something that's made them talk to us in the first place. They're thinking about changing how they do their business. And it's a kind of good insight because the, the kind of reasons we thought people would look to change was, you know, obviously the, the big check or the, you know, the worry about compliance or whatever. But one of the big kind of themes we've had that's come out of that has been people are really worried about how they're going to future-proof future -proof their businesses. You know, they're worried about changes that are happening, how technology is changing, how client proposition is changing. And it's something I think if you run a smaller firm, that's a real concern and certainly one we had before because it's very difficult to go and spend you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds in a small firm on developing this client proposition or this tech proposition. And it's something that you know, we're lucky enough to have the PE backers that enable us to do that. We've been able to bring in good people for the industry to help us do that and build a team. And it's an absolute game changer for us in terms of how we look at you know, going forward. I think it's made us realize, especially speaking to lots of other firms, that's the concern of you know, how do we get to that next stage? Are we going to left, be left behind if we don't change? You know, we all used to go to Blockbuster Video on a Friday night. We don't do that anymore. What happened to them? They didn't change. Or Argos has been, you know, we don't queue at NRB anymore. We've got to change in how we do things. And I think if we don't address that change properly now, we will be left behind. It's either companies that embrace things properly, existing companies, or whether it's new entrants. And I think the new entrants is something people talk about and kind of suspect may happen. But I think there will be a lot, not necessarily the robo-advisors, but unless we have that kind of proposition to offer our clients, again, I think we'll lose clients, the ones that come in and do that. And it's all about having that ability to, um, to adapt to change. And I think you know, COVID made all of our businesses change quite a lot. We all started using Zoom and Teams and DocuSign and whatever. We all thought, fantastic, we're all really techy now. Um, but that's only the kind of start of that. That's something that makes our life easier, but we've really got to go to the next few levels to kind of get there so that what we offer the clients is what what they expect and also to make us more efficient because I think we can get massive efficiencies from the business. You know, if we look and you know, talk on the platform side, we realized we were using 15 different platforms with our clients. That's, you know, if you look at that from the outside, that's crazy. There's no reason why you'd have that. We need to start addressing those kind of things. We had a new tech chap come in and he picked the client where he identified we'd put that client's surname in 11 times. You know, Nine times we'd actually spelt it right, but it's, um, it's, it's that kind of thing where you just suddenly find that we can be really inefficient, and you know, it, it's all about kind of getting costs down, not at the detriment of the client, but getting things down so the client has a really slick kind of service that they expect. And I think people now, all generations, even the kind of you know the really old clients we've got now, do expect to have that kind of digital proposition to be able to kind of go on their phones or go on and check stuff there that they perhaps didn't have three or four years ago. So we see the biggest challenge other than consumer duty and regulatory stuff, the biggest challenge being how we adapt our businesses to be kind of fit for the you know, five years time or two years time, because I think things are changing at absolute rapid pace now. And that's the biggest challenge we face as IFAs, having that so it works swiftly. I and mean, we now have a, a platform we try and use for all clients. We're never gonna get down to one, but it's amazing how efficient you can be if you start looking at that, saying, okay, how do we do that? How does that integrate? We have an in-house investment proposition, again, it's not right for everyone, we know that, but for certain clients it fits, it makes us really efficient. And all of those kind of things. And what I would say is, you know, if, you, if you're worried about that, it's, it's one of the main reasons why people kind of do look to kind of you know, change their business to maybe be part of a bigger group or you know, merge with other firms or whatever it's gonna be. But it seems to be the tech side. And I think it's a real, I think everyone will share that, it's a real concern. And getting that kind of connectivity with clients. We, we do videos now for clients rather than send a piece of paper, stuff like that. It's really simple stuff, but you'll be amazed the kind of positive feedback we have you know, from doing that. So all I say to everyone is, you know, the, the experience we've had from talking to dozens and dozens of IFAs and getting a feel for what, you know, what the concerns are out there, it would be about developing that proposition and kind of getting that tech side right, 
but it does obviously take an awful lot of money, an awful lot of time. And you know, they're, they're probably two things that most IFA firms at the moment are struggling, you know, certainly on the time side. Um, but it, it's something I would you know, really say, address that side now, because if we're left behind, we've all seen industries that have been left behind, been taken over, and they've become you know, no longer current now. Thank you, Richard. <clears throat> Neil. I'm, I'm going to sit down so you can all see me. Um, so, hi, I'm Neil, CEO of Progeny. Um, thank you for Heather for the opening remarks. I think if we can speed lawyers up, we all agree that's a good thing. Um, so, Progeny is a slightly different business model. It started in 2016. And just before that, we spent a couple of years trying to understand what clients needed. Crazy idea. Go and talk to them. Um, and we talked about other professional services that they, they used and their experience with, with these types of businesses. And it quickly became apparent that people also hated lawyers and accountants, um, as well as financial planners at the time. So, so the, the theory behind Progeny is bringing together all advisors in, in one room, or now on one screen, isn't it? Great. Um, and what do I mean by that? I mean, if the best example I give is if someone is selling a business, and you've just spoken to that point there, Richard, it's, you know, they'll have an incumbent accountant, they'll have a tax advisor, they'll have a private lawyer, corporate lawyer, and a mate down the golf club. Five different pieces of advice, five different fees. What is the real chance that the client gets the best outcome? They've paid a hell of a lot in fees, but what's the chance that they get the best outcome? So we wanted to bring together Progeny as all the advisors in, in one room. So in 2016, when we launched, we had Progeny Wealth, the financial planning business, Progeny Private Law to look at wills, estate planning for clients, corporate law, because our clients buy and sell stuff. It's fairly simple. Um, progeny Tax, because that's the glue that sticks us all together. Uh, and Progeny Asset Management, recognizing that if we were going to scale a business, then managing portfolios and an advisory mandate was not going to be suitable. We had to have those discretionary powers going forward. Um, so as a business, we are horizontally integrated as well as vertically integrated. And I think that's really important, trying to put that client experience at the center of everything that we do. Um, and we've had this three-tier growth strategy. One is to, to build a brand, to grow um, organically. That's a special source that everyone's after, that no one manages to get. Um, two is to encourage more clients to take on board more services, to get that horizontal integration working. And the third was to buy stuff to turbocharge one and two. So nothing that we do is rocket science, by the way. We're just simple folk from Yorkshire. Um, but it works, um, ultimately. So over the course of the last six years, I think we've acquired 19 firms, including lawyers, including tax practices. Uh, we've taken the business to about $8 billion, uh, of AUM. Um, and we are one of the largest chartered financial planning businesses in the UK now, if not globally. Uh, and our ambition is to become the best professional advisory practice, not financial planning business, in the world for British people. So a little bit of background. Um, what do I think is important about the future? I think the one word we're all going to hear today is, is technology. It's at the heart of everything that we do. Um, and I think, yeah, it has to improve in this sector. Access to data has to improve in this sector. And we have to give better client outcomes. Um, we have to allow clients to choose how they want to engage with us, as opposed to us dictating that this is, we have to sit belly to belly across a table and do business. That's disappeared. We have to be able to do it the way that clients want to do it and a time frame that they want to, to achieve as well. Um, and I think what we have to remember is that pretty much everything in this room has been paid for by a client. We are stewards of that client money. And it's so, so, so important that we take it and we deliver value. So people talk about value propositions, and that's absolutely right. We have to define our value proposition. We have to understand you know, what is above the line, what is below the line when it comes to value. Um, and for me, if we're taking it back to financial planning, you know, we are becoming emotional coaches. You know, if you can do it on Google, if you can go and chat GT, then fine. Clients can do that themselves. But where are we actually adding value? So taking money from clients in terms of fees, you know, taking on their trust and delivering that back to them in a value proposition, I believe, is where the industry is still failing um, in the main. Um, I think charges are still too high, controversial point, but I, th I think they are. Um, and I think they need to improve or we need to deliver better value to clients. We also need to invest in the future of this business. Um, yeah, this industry, this profession, if we dare call it that, if we want to become one. And that's by bringing on talent, you know, growing our own talent into the future. Um, you know, one of the things we're most proud of is, is our own Advisor Academy. And we've taken 17, 18 students through an academy over the last three years. And we all have that responsibility. 
we all have to look at our businesses and say, right, how do we generate the next financial planners uh, of the future, the next lawyers, the next tax accountants uh, for the future? And if we don't, then this, this thing's going to die. You know, we are a nation of shopkeepers. There are 13,000 advisory businesses in the UK. Who are we going to hand them on to? Who, who are we going to pass the stewardship of these clients on to? We need to get the next generation coming through. So for me, the two key areas would be technology. Three areas, I've just thought of another. Um, <laughs> can't count, that's not a good thing, is it? Right? Um, value proposition and investment in the future in terms of people. Um, you know, technology will never override that client interaction that they desire. Thank you, Neil. Patrick. Good morning, thank you, Heather, for having me here. Um, so my name is Patrick Thompson. I'm CEO of JP Morgan Asset Management uh, here in EMEA. Um, I'm also chair of something called the Investment Association, which is the trade body for UK asset managers. So <clears throat> I'll preface my comments really talking about JP Morgan and our business briefly, but happy to talk about the industry and some of the challenges, certainly in the news, um, in terms of the mergers of asset managers and wealth managers. We manage two and a half trillion, so we're at the larger end. We're the third largest active manager in the world. Um, why is that important? You know, partly on the comments about technology and the need for resources. Um, asset management is an industry that is extremely competitive. The introduction of passive managers has led to a collapse in fees, uh, the increase of costs, particularly in terms of regulation. So I know as wealth managers, many people are dealing with uh, regulation. Asset managers, I, you know, we have a, a plethora of regulation that we have to absorb, um, you know, and these are, these are increasingly expensive. And of course, that puts a lot of business models uh, under pressure. So what do you see? You see a lot of mergers and consolidations, obviously over the weekend, the two large, well, the largest wealth manager in the world consolidating. Um, a lot of pressure on, from shareholders uh, on costs and the way you manage your business. So it is a very competitive business. Uh, our, our view is active management, it's all about value. Um, and if you can deliver value to clients, which we firmly believe you can, because we've got the resources to be able to look into companies, um, whether they've got, uh, they're able to deliver sustainable value or not. And I just pick up on a point that Heather made in terms of technology and, and all the headlines. You know, last year was a brutal year for growth companies, particularly in the tech sector, because a lot of investors like us said, hang on a minute, we need to deliver dividends to, to shareholders, to clients, to investors. We need to see that your, mod, your business model is sustainable. And actually, a lot of them are not sustainable. There's a huge cash burn on them. You've seen the IPO market dry up. And so there is a real reassessment of growth companies coming with this amazing technology saying, hey, we can solve the world. Um, that might be the case. But to Heather's point, some of these things take a long time to mature into businesses. So one of the things that we pride ourselves on is we have, a, we have over 1,000 analysts looking at these companies globally <clears throat> and making determinations as to whether there is a good investment or a bad investment. So for us, active management is the heart of the value proposition. You know, our performance is extremely strong. I've been working for the company for 25 years. And this, at times like this, when you have massive dislocation, and you have central banks raising interest rates, and you have volatility, uh, and real challenges, this is the time, frankly, when you need to understand whether a company is, has a sustainable business model, whether it's going to be profitable in the future, or whether it's not. And it's going to be a, a bank that has a run on its deposit base that then leads to a collapse, uh, and the equity shareholders get wiped out. So for us, active management, absolutely critical. Um, just touching on the future technology, absolutely. We have 1,400 um, computer scientists. And why do we have those people? Because we think fundamentally our investment processes need data, AI, natural language processing, uh, engineering to be able to be as efficient as we possibly can. Fees have come down ever since I started in this business. They've come down, they're, they're going to continue to go down. The, the answer to, being, to having a sustainable business in the face of that competition is technology. And the ability to capture insights in an, in an efficient, quick form. If you think of... Like in the US at the moment, for example, ETFs, and here I mean active and passive ETFs, have over, are overtaking mutual funds. Why is that? In the US, the mutual fund business was set up in 1940. They're called 40 Act Funds, 1940. ETFs have come along. It's more efficient engineering. It's, um, uh, you know, it delivers a better experience to customers who want to understand exactly what they own at any minute of the day. You know, there are a bunch of features that make it attractive in the United States. 
that sort of technology, that engineering, is going to consistently drive down costs and improve a customer experience, which I think is a good thing, because we're all here to deliver for customers. So technology is the single most important investment that we make in our business. It's a competitive advantage to have the scale that we've got. We're going to continue to invest in it. Um, but it is going to lead to some challenges in asset management as more and more firms consolidate because they don't have the technology resources to be able to compete. Just one other comment on sustainable investing, and it's interesting to me to see that it's not on the agenda today, which is, which is interesting because I think it does reflect you know, a bit of a pause people are having around investing in sustainable uh, strategies. Last year, outperformance of fossil fuel companies and oil, a reminder that we need to invest in the transition to a greener economy uh, and making sure that we're here to serve our customers and our clients. But sustainable investing, my prediction is, in the future, that is going to continue to be you know, a real driver of growth. Um, so, and, and, the, and the final thing really is, I, I would say, customization. So the ability for you and for us as product manufacturers to customize solutions, customize portfolios, customize outcomes for your individual clients. That is the other big trend that we're, we're betting on and we think that we'll deliver uh, over time. Thank you, Patrick. Jackie. Get to go last. That's the, the best <laughs> slot because you hear what everyone else has said first. Um, so I'm Jackie Leeper. I'm the CEO of Embark which is a platform business acquired by Lloyds Banking Group about a year ago. Um, I also kept my other job, which uh, was looking after the workplace pensions, individual pensions business for Scottish widows and also the Halifax share dealing business. And I've added those because I think it gives you a good insight into all of the customers across all the different spectrums that use the products and the services that we all provide. Um, and it's quite fascinating because, you know, if you have a look at even the last few weeks, and some of the announcements last week around lifetime allowance, annual allowances, the complexity in this business isn't going away. If, if anything, it's becoming, you know, even heavier. And, and therefore, people need help at the, at the end of the game to get support on the right choices, particularly at those important moments around achieving retirement um, and other big life event moments, bereavements and so on. And financial advisors do that brilliantly. And financial advisors' services, I think, will continue to be in high demand. But there is a finite amount of financial advisors. And actually, let's face it, that's going to be concentrated on the high net worth. Only a small number of people will be able to afford to access that type of really high-quality face-to-face advice. And then at the other end of the spectrum, and we see this, we've got 4 million people now in our workplace savings business vast majority of them have been automatically enrolled. They didn't actually make any choices at all. Um, engaging them is a real challenge. All of the providers that are in that business will tell you that we spend a lot of time developing you know, apps and digital services and communications to just try and get people to make some active choice, even considering how much they should contribute. And it's hard arts. You know, it's, it's still an area that most people sort of see as a, a time away off. However, at the other end of the spectrum, uh, we've just launched a new direct-to-consumer uh, proposition using the Embark platform, actually. So it's just an ISA GIA product, fully digital, targeting the bank customers. So it's, it's, it's solely designed for the Lloyds Banking Group uh, franchise customers. Um, so it was launched two to three weeks ago. And it's fascinating already to see just the types of people that are using it. it is, it's you know, a very straightforward, simple product. It's, it's nine clicks to open the account. It can take you less than five minutes. There are only three funds available, high, medium, low. Um, and so far, 45% um, of the people opening those accounts are under 35, 10% under 24. It's just so accessible. And some of the things that are just, that we would have seen a few years ago as being a really exciting thing. You know, we use all the data we have for the customers already, so it's all pre-populated. We do all the anti-money laundering checks in the background. Those things are just hygiene now. You know, a few years ago, that would have been a really exciting experience for someone. So I suppose where I'm coming from in all of this is, how do you take um, some of the innovation and some of the simplicity that you see in the sort of execution-only, direct-to-consumer side and some of the personalization and really valued services at the high net worth end that a financial advisor would provide, how do we provide something that hits that middle ground that can combine those things, that can use technology, but still have human 
involvement to really personalise the service and, and provide something that's really high value for customers. Okay, thank you very much. That was quite a bit of a result, so that was exactly 25 minutes. Well done. <laughs> um, so, first note, I must get a picture which is less recent than that one, uh, so that I, I don't look quite as old. Um, so, <laughs> I'm sure, while you think about your questions, a couple of observations from me. Um, the two words I heard most, most frequently repeated and used by each of the panellists, was efficiency, were, sorry, efficiency and technology. Right. And the other thing I heard quite a lot was something I believe in passionately, in that people, generally speaking, in financial services like choice, but they don't actually like to choose. Right. So how, to the panel, how in achieving that efficiency and that use of technology, do you continue to have the customization that you talked about and the individual approach that people so vastly want. They want to feel as if it's their solution for them. How do you achieve that? So I can go to one of you, or one of you can offer a view. I guess uh, client segmentation is one thing where you start looking at the different type of clients you have and having propositions there, but then not making clients necessarily go into that. So for example, we, we run a D2C or self-serve proposition, which I think for certain people, they like that. They don't necessarily want to speak to a pensions advisor or an investment advisor because they find it incredibly boring or they haven't got the time to do it. Uh -huh. But they can then go online and do it themselves. And having that choice whereby it is not just for the lower value clients, it can be for the higher value clients and just choose to do the business that way. Yeah. But they still have access to all the tools in the box. But we have to move away from thinking that if we don't have that kind of annual review face-to-face -face and everything else, well, that may not be what the client wants. Giving them that choice, I think, will help us to both attract and retain those clients because I think some of our bigger clients may feel it doesn't suit them. We can easily go to someone who gives them a, you know, a more suitable arrangement for them. Okay. I was just going to add to that. I don't think it's an either or anymore. I think you can be using a financial advisor for some things. So, you know, personally, I still use a financial advisor for all the pension retirement stuff, but I completely manage all my own mm -hmm. I as a GIA. I think that will be very common that people will mix and match what they're happy to self-manage and where they need help. Mm -hmm. And you need to be able to accommodate that, you know, what, no matter what type of business you're, you're running. And then I think the other thing is this, how do you create that sort of personalization and that's where technology, you know, open finance now opens up the gateway where you could be sucking in all of the information about people and actually help present back to them the picture on their, their current, if you think about the old fact find process and some mm. of the things, you're relying on what the person told you their position was, actually you can do all of that more efficiently and actually far more accurately. And I think that's where you've got to have value back. I think someone's got to get value out of what you're doing and charging for. Okay. Patrick? Yeah, I mean, I think as a, a wholesaler to wealth managers, it's important that we deliver you choice in terms of products. So we have to think very carefully about the product menu. But I think, and this is a particular personal bugbear of mine, we in the asset management industry do a terrible job of explaining our strategies. We make it very complicated. We use very archaic financial terms. And I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from consumer companies that do a really good job engaging with their customers and making it very, very simple. Um, was that you? Um, Who was that? How was it you, Charlie? <laughs> Excellent. I, um, I didn't explain the rules yeah. properly. I didn't realise it was that, that kind of an event. But anyway. Um, uh, but, you know, I think there's so many lessons that can be drawn from companies. And here, fintechs, I think, really do show a really interesting way of engaging with customers. Because if you take in, in, in banking, you take some of the digital banks, Revolut as an example. My, I mean, I don't have a Revolut account. My children all have Revolut accounts. And they go, why don't you have one? It's simple, it's easy. You know, you have a very clear value proposition around that. And I just think that, you know, we could do a better job about harnessing some of those things to deliver jargon-free, clear, explainable choices to customers that get them to engage more. And you think of nudging, and other ways that you get people to engage. Because fundamentally, we're all in the business of getting people to save more. You've got to get people in this country. We have a real problem with the amount, uh, the, the, the lack of saving. Auto enrollment's done a huge amount, but I think as an industry, collectively, we really need to focus on that customer experience. And I think technology companies can show us 
you know, different ways of doing it. Yeah, okay. Should I take the fact that you have the box as an indication of the fact you want to say something? Ask a question, Charlie. Question. Good. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, panel speakers and uh, Patrick. Thank you for your segue on fintech. My name is Charlie White Thompson. I'm from Saxo. I, I like the name Next Wealth because it's looking forward. It's a better name than previous wealth. So assume, <laughs> assume, yeah. assume that looking forward that we are in a new paradigm, that we're in a volatile market and that the days of portfolios being uh, stimulated with a lot of quantitative easing and super low interest rates are <coughs> zero, how important does the panel think that looking forward, we need to offer clients the full portfolio? And what I mean by that is multi-asset, so bonds, fixed income, commodities, the full tool set, and the ability to protect the portfolio to downside, which, if anything, this year is to go by, there's a lot of downside that we as a group need to deal with. Okay. So that kind of uh, is, a, is a kind of tangential point or question to my choice thing. I mean, Jackie, you said earlier on that you've launched a set of funds or an access to route to market, which has three choices. Yeah. Yeah. Three choices and only 2% are taking the cautious. Right. And how does that sit with Charlie's view that we should consider all options for people? So we, we deliberately kept it simple. And we're having a big debate around whether the three should be five. <laughs> um, you know, given that, that hardly anybody's chosen the cautious ones. Now, the target segment for this are people new to investing. So it really was recognising that the majority of the people coming in are sitting on cash at the moment and actually trying to get them to make a very sophisticated investment choice was going to be a barrier to getting them to invest at all. Mm -hmm. So if, if you like, we almost see this as an entry and people get familiar, they get used to then watching what markets are doing um, before you could get into maybe some of the more sophisticated choices. We do offer the full range and in fact the share dealing business um, is seeing a huge uptick on ETFs in particular and people being much more comfortable, mm. uh, you know, not just stock picking but actually thinking about um, the funds and the different options they've got through the share dealing service. So, and then obviously in the sort of wealth and the high net worth segment, I mean, that's a financial advisor's bread and butter and therefore enabling that, which is what we do as a platform. Mm. But, but I think it's still a barrier for a lot of people that are new to investing. And I think you've got to have different solutions. And, and our job therefore is to try and protect them from that downside risk. And therefore, it's a multi-asset fund that we're running. We are having to you know, manage the components of that. And even already in the last few weeks, you can imagine the customers that were in the very early, this product's only been open three weeks. People in week one have already seen a dip because of mm. what happened last week sure. with banks and so on. Sure. So I was having a bit of a worry. We would see people have a little wobble. Mm. Most of them haven't noticed at the moment, but, um, and, or certainly haven't taken the money out. But, um, you might see a few more people rushing to the cautious yeah. fund. Yeah. 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 Mm. Okay. Any other comment? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, people want choice but don't choose, then maybe the choices are wrong. Mm -hmm. I think we have to be really careful about that. I think to the point about risk, I think this is about responsibility um, to educate clients. I think DTC is a great way to encourage people to certainly start that journey. Uh, but you don't want everyone jumping into the high-risk bucket straight away. So it's making sure that people are making informed choices based on their circumstances and, and the, out, the, output, the outcome that they need. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you're 22, you can take high risk because you might not need that money for 60 years. Mm -hmm. But when you're 60, clearly, you know, you might need a, a lower risk portfolio. Um, but I also think, yes, we are in a world where quantitative easing has disappeared, but we've also got interest rates back. Mm. So actually downside risk is far easier than it has been for the last 10 years, mm -hmm. because we can invest in, in low risk assets now and still generate quite a good return if we ignore inflation for a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a huge educational piece. And if you're under the age of 33, you don't remember interest rates. So how do we educate people what that's like, you know, what it's like to pay a higher mortgage uh, to get returns on bonds and you know, various other outcomes. So the responsibility is around the education there and making sure people are in the right models. Okay, okay. I'm conscious of the fact that we have uh, not had much questioning from the audience. So um, Slido, I can't see anything. So I've gone to the conventional mechanism of Emma's hand, right? So Emma. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, panel. Excellent. Um, my question really was about um, integration, but efficiency after integration as well. And I'm kind of looking directly at Neil because um, you've got solicitors, you've got accountants, you've got tax lawyers, you've got advisors, 
all coming together. So is there one system that everyone's happy with? And presumably when you started that business, you started with a blank sheet of paper, so the answer was probably yes. But as you're integrating other businesses and buying 19 firms, how painful is that integration and have you nailed it? That's hell. <laughs> Christ, dealing with people mm. um, who don't want to integrate. So I think to the point, yeah, you start with one common platform, you start with one purpose, and that purpose is to serve clients under one roof, just bringing together all those professions. So I think if you have a strong purpose, you can take people on a journey. Now, hopefully we've got no lawyers in the room, so I'm about to upset you. Um, but try and take lawyers on that journey who think they sit in a world above everyone else, um, bizarrely, sorry. Um, so taking people on the journey is super hard. I think you have to have one common purpose. I think you have to have one operating model. Now, technology sits uh, differently across those different legal entities. You know, legal and tax run, you, you use different, run different systems to the wealth business, but you know, there has to be commonality there as well about data uh, and how that data, A, can be shared and B, is utilized to deliver better client outcomes. So integration will never be easy. Um, you know, you end up redecorating someone's house while they're still living in it. They get violent sometimes. Um, you know, it's, it's not a nice experience for people. We understand that. But actually, you've sold your business. You know, you wanted a, an upgrade. You wanted a better outcome for your clients and probably some money. And you have to remember that as well. Um, so it's just taking people on that journey um, and usually as fast as possible. Uh, from our perspective, it, it takes a year to do it. You've never pushed people through the change curve fast enough. So, you know, three to six months is, uh, is, is long enough. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right, right. Yeah, but I'm. <laughs> thank you, Emma. <laughs> Great throw, thank you. Um, it's Alistair Walker, uh, Managing Director of HNW. I want to think about choice architecture and, and ask about choice architecture, particularly when you look at D2C, you look at auto enrollment, and you imagine three different clients who, or scheme members probably, who first join a pension scheme. The first joins Nest and gets told for the first five years you've got to be in cash because that's safe and it'll get you into investing. So that's Nest's foundation stage. No idea why, but it is. That's customer one. Customer two does a risk profiler and the first question talks about the capacity for loss and they go, oh, I don't, don't really want to lose anything. So they click no loss, thank you. So they end up somewhere else. Customer three finds the sort button by 12 months highest return clicks that and goes, ooh, those biotech healthcare funds look exciting. <laughs> Fill their pension full of that. Now those are three real people, people who I've spoken to, who've all had those experiences. How are three kind of identical entry points left in such varied outcomes as a result of the choice architecture we collectively are responsible for? So... <laughs> I have no idea why you would put somebody new into a pension scheme into cash, because um, actually the majority of the people being auto-enrolled <clears> are younger with ages to go when I mean, they'll be working forever, to be honest, on the current contribution rates. So, you know, they should be taking as much risk as possible. But I have to tell you, our experience still is 90% of people don't move out the default funds. They stay in them. And even the 10% maybe move to another default fund. You know, the actual, even though there are other funds available, vast majority of people do not feel confident enough to select them, although given you've, you've just given me some examples. Um, and I think this is back to the, where does the responsibility lie and how do you provide some guardrails? You know, back to my why, we've only got three funds, maybe five funds in this, because there, there are uh, a whole range of outcomes that could happen um, that, that are unintended by not allowing people to um, speak to anyone or, or just to play about. And we've, we saw a little bit of this in the share dealing business. You know, you'll have seen all the GameStop, you know, when all that was going on. There were hordes of people taking out share dealing accounts and speculating away and playing the markets. Fortunately, relatively small amounts of money, but and, and probably in quite a safe way in terms of recognising, therefore, you can lose all your money. It can overnight suddenly just plummet and you could lose out. You know, it isn't all upside and it isn't all... It's, it's almost you're not careful a form of gambling, really. So I think it's you, if you're going to do all these things and going to allow this choice, you've got to have the backstops um, and you've got to make sure that you're clear on the types of behaviour and the types of customers 
Now we've got a whole amount of data on our customers. So, so the, the, um, the way that we intend to manage this is to say, if we've got someone that we can see through their day-to-day -day spending is reasonably risk averse and they have gone into some self-directed fund and they're speculating like mad, there are, there's clearly a disconnect. Should we intervene? Should we have a conversation with that customer and check they know what they're doing? That's the sort of thing I think we're going to have to evolve. That sort of digital with a human touch where you're using the data you've got to match up with the behaviour, to match up with the right outcomes. Okay. Richard, not in the DTC space, but you run money. Yep. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so how do you kind of save people from themselves uh, and their, their natural inclinations? Yeah, we run, we run a number of OICs, um, risk rated, so from care for growth up to alpha plus. And they're all by their very nature, even the alpha plus isn't high risk. So it ties into D2C. If people go into D2C, we don't have a dangerous option. So the biotech option is not there. The nuclear option is not there. It's all kind of you know, low, medium and high. People can kind of pick where they fit. It has a risk profile if they choose to do that. But it keeps all the options safe. And I think within the funds we run, again, we're not the high risk end of the market. If people want high risk, they can do an EIS VCT, they can go to, you know, they can buy individual shares themselves. But all, all of our options are relatively safe. So, you know, it might be a high risk is seven out of 10, which we don't class as particularly high risk. It suits the younger people or the more adventurous. But I think narrowing, and I think what Jackie said with the D2C, you offer three funds, we offer five. I actually quite like that. I think yeah. offering mm. that narrow range is actually quite a good kind of safety net because, you know, if they did have a biotech option or whatever, or people scale down to what's done best, <coughs> That's a dangerous area if they're not getting advice and they don't have the experience, which a lot of those people won't have. So by keeping it deliberately kind of vanilla and safe-ish, I think that's, that's quite a good kind of safety factor to have in there. They're not going to go too far, too okay. far wrong. Thank you. This could be risky. There you go. Basketball at school. Um, Farzana Khalil, Chief Customer Officer at Seckle, the API first custodian and technology provider, just to get that in. Um, <laughs> that's been a really interesting panel, firstly, so thank you very much. Um, my question is really tying back to some of Heather's intro and ChatGPT, and I wondered how much you'd considered ChatGPT within your businesses, and if that was, if it's not been considered, when you might start to consider. I guess you've all spoken about being value-add businesses, especially in, when you think about discretionary management. And Patrick, to your point where you've got 1,000 analysts and 1,400 data analysts, I, I wonder at what stage do you start to think how you can utilise some of the technology coming through? Great question, Fazit. Thank you. Yeah. Patrick. So, um, look, there's some very interesting... Uh, examples of stuff that can help things like count opening um, and efficiencies of onboarding. ChatGPT, I think we have to be very careful. We've actually um, put it in a sandbox and we're not allowing the use of it because I think there are some risks. And I think Heather's example shows the last version had a 10% accuracy racing and you know the current version. So these things, um, because we're in the business of managing data, and making decisions on behalf of our customers on that data, we want to make sure there's data integrity. So we have a bunch of natural language processing models, we have artificial intelligence labs, um, but we're very selective about acquiring external providers, not least because we're very concerned about cybersecurity. And we've got to rigorously test these models because, and one of the advantages that we have is being part of a bank, we have a very high um, bar for fiduciary care, for fiduciary customer care. And I think that that as a guiding principle when you're looking at new technologies is so important because the efficiency that you can gain from a piece of software can be remarkable. It can be business changing. It can also destroy your business. And I'll give you an example. Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank was a digitally enabled bank. So you have a bunch of VC investors, and I'm paraphrasing here, but a bunch of VC investors who suddenly decide to act unilaterally, very fast, amplified by social media. If you think of the old days of a run on a bank, you'd have probably had somebody in a uniform standing outside the bank, closing the door as the queue went around the block. You know, so I compare and contrast, there are risks to technology, the speed with which your business can get disrupted, the speed with which customers can react is something you've just got to be very, very thoughtful about. So we're huge buyers of it. We invest tremendous amounts of, our, our tech budget this year is going to be $11 billion. 
So just think about that as, a, as a, an area where we feel if you don't augment human insight with technology, I think it's going to be very challenging for you in financial services. But there are significant risks to it. So we want to be measured and thoughtful about how we engage with some of these software. Okay. Neil, you spoke a lot about technology in your, in your address. And can I amplify the question and take something that's come through on the Slido thing? To what degree would the use of technology enable the bridging of what is generally accepted as being an advice gap? And if so, how could you use it in your business? Um, so I think to the point as to where you can um, deploy something like, like chat, I think it's not uh, for me why or when, but it's where in the business. Um, I think we all agree that these efficiencies are coming, but how do we do that in a, in a low-risk way? Absolutely, when it comes to cybersecurity. Again, we're stewards of that client data. Um, the advice gap is something that, yeah, vastly needs looking at. But it's, we've been talking about it for 15 years, and no mm. one's ever found the secret sauce to make it work. Um, but unless we all come together to actually start that clock ticking, it, it will never happen. Is this a solution? It's something we should absolutely be looking at. Um, but again, to that point, let's not make sure everyone ends up in cash because they've ticked the wrong box. You know, we, we still need to be data mining that and using the science to understand where those gaps are, where those anomalies rest or lie, so we can you know, influence and help people in, in, in those circumstances. So um, I think, he, I think the, dropping that in sandbox and dropping that into some, in the safe space right now to start playing with it has to be something that, that we're looking at. But again, you know, the financial planning community is 13,000 firms. How do you do that? Who's at scale? Who can actually start to do that? Apart from the major banks, mm -hmm. you know, apart from some of the technology companies out there. So mm -hmm. it's a problem that, that we all want to have to solve. And I'm not sure we all want to solve it at the moment. Well, the only way we'll solve it is together. And together is not something that we're very good at. Okay. La one last question, um, either from the audience or from me. So I won't throw it, but I'm only going. <laughs> Go on in. You have saved me a job. If I may just build on the previous uh, question. So the comment has been across the panel, got to improve customer outcomes. Um, Patrick was very specific and said, uh, we've got to improve um, investor outcomes. Um, and just going back to some of the comments you were saying, well, what we don't do, or what we do do is put chat GPT in a box, uh, sandbox at the moment. So would you be able to elaborate on what you think could be around the corner in terms of improving investor outcomes? Um, so, I, yes, I think the way that you think about, if you think about investing, you think of the data that is required. So if you're evaluating companies, you know, we've all seen the charts with the amount of data that is created, you know, which is rising exponentially. So if you have, for example, you're looking at, you know, pick an asset class, corporate debt. There is so much data for an analyst to sift through to make an informed decision on whether one bit of corporate debt is better than the other, that actually augmenting that insight with some form of um, machine reading um, and being able to pick out certain terms, you know, looking at press releases of two, two identical companies, and is there a way of sifting through and getting a sense of the direction of those companies and the way they're going to use their corporate debt to make an informed decision? So sitting alongside, it's never going, in my view, it's never going to replace human insight and analysis. It's going to augment and help people make um, you know, informed decisions on, on asset class. I would make one point, and for those who aren't thinking about this, I know that, you know, and the point was made very well about fixed income being back. And this is where I think technology is so important. We have a one in, one in a generation buying opportunity. You've got an asset class that used to be a staple of people's portfolios that went out of fashion because central banks decided to suppress interest rates globally and you know, the yields went to zero, or in some cases in Europe, negative. That asset class is back. So I think it's incumbent on all of us on the basis that diversifying your risk is a sensible and prudent investment strategy to really think about fixed income. Because in my view, it absolutely has a role in everybody's portfolio because interest rates are back to a level where you can get the yield, you get a degree of inflation protection depending on the asset, um, and it diversifies you away from other risks. And you look at what happened over the weekend and you look at the risks that equities can represent, 
And I think it's, you know, as a, you think about customer outcomes, we want people to invest for the long term in a diversified strategy to meet their particular goals and needs. It's a far better way of doing that rather than taking a very narrow theme-based view on a set of investment opportunities that might lead to a good outcome, but then again, it might not. So my plea, and this is where we use our technology a lot, is looking at risk management, looking at investing opportunities and looking at looking at through a risk management lens, which frankly, because of the bull market in equities over the last, you know, really since 2009, nobody's had to really think about. And I think now is a very good reminder of the importance of active risk management. Thank you. Okay, so with 36 seconds to go, can I uh, attempt to summarize? I started off by saying one of the best ways to connect is to pull the pieces apart and listen to the individual constituent elements before drawing them together. And I think you will have seen from that debate, or hopefully you'll have seen from that debate, that whilst they run different parts of the value chain, there's a great deal of commonality, both in terms of the things that they are focusing on, but also the, th the future that they see. I think one of the things that came through is we're all here because of the people who entrust in one way or another their money to us, uh, whether it be intermediated, whether it be through a platform, whether it's an IFA or whether it's a fund manager direct. And it's clear to me that the panel have their best interests at heart and think clear carefully about how to deliver best, better customer outcomes, <laughs> uniformly and together and well connected. So can I thank the panel for their contribution? Can you thank the panel? Thank you. Emma, it was nice to listen back to that panel, wasn't it? Because you and I were both in the room for that event. It was so nice. I don't know about you, but I picked up so many things that I didn't hear on the day, or I did hear on the day, but I didn't think about them. And doing this again has made me question lots and lots of things. But particularly, I think Peter brought up um, in his summary at the end of this session, how there were a few themes. So efficiency was one, technology, I think, was another. Um, and for me, those things are really interesting. But what we need to perhaps get a bit better at um, and what we hope to, to be able to challenge is how efficient is efficiency and how technical does the technology become? Um, and because they've all got different types of businesses and, and obviously you picked those individuals because they are all you know, across the value chain and all do something a little bit different. But I thought that the themes, the technology, the efficiency were all that they, they all came through, but no one person particularly left me with anything like oh that's different that's going to move the dial um, I don't know about you yeah that was really interesting and and I think related to that theme of efficiency was about the efficiency of choice for the customer and it was not overwhelming people so that it can be efficient that customer journey can be efficient for the customer as well and um, and we had you know, Richard talked about five investment options. Um, Jackie said there were three, but only two that customers were actually using. And so it's building that efficiency into the client journey, but also allowing the customer to make those choices and not get overwhelmed. Um, I thought it was really interesting that there was some talk about um, the the ability to move between different channels. So Richard talked about having a D2C proposition and a devised proposition. Um, Jackie talked about that challenge of being able to bring people along on a, on a journey. So 45% of the customers going through the bank journey are under age 35. Yeah. So coming in through that bank channel, but thinking about how they can evolve and migrate through all of the offerings to as they grow their wealth and the complexity grows. Um, so really, really interesting, that topic of optionality. You asked a question about integrations, which I thought was really interesting. And Neil's response was <laughs> fascinating, wasn't it? Because it wasn't about the tech, it was about the people. And I had to listen back to it a couple of times because I think he said that it's hell 
people don't want to integrate. And and it was interesting because he talked about how you have to do it within three months. And there's a financial incentive for the person to integrate. So it's not about integrating the systems was his response. It was integrating the people and bringing them on that journey. I mean, that was a burning question when they were all talking about how they're growing their business models. Because whether you're Neil Moles and you're building a horizontally integrated business or you're Richard Skerritt and you're building you know, a vertically integrated business or, or whoever you're, you are, the integration is key, surely, to success. Because one of the other things that Neil said was it's really difficult to build for scale because scale's one end and then there's this, as you say, you know, the three to six months um, integration phase. Um, and, and as you say, talking about that was relevant to people. Um, but one of the things that Neil also said, which... I noted on the on the day and also when I listened back it rang into my head was he said that as advisors or financial planners that we are stewards of the client's money and I thought that was so true because how often do we forget that how often that actually um, clients have the ability to like or dislike the service, whether you're a platform, whether you're a, you know, a, um, a financial advisor, whether you're a fund manager, or whatever part you play, actually, it's the client's money we're talking about. So if integration is a key point to be able to scale your business, then you've got to be really good at it because you don't want to um, upset the, the client who's at the end of it because the client can vote with their feet and just, you know, kind of sack you if if that's the case you know so so I I I noted down stewards of clients money was actually the heart of all of what we do and also access to data Neil was talking about integration is key but actually the data is also key because if you want to horizontally integrate a business you've got to know everything about that client in all different areas of those experts that they're being driven from so I thought that was really interesting as well. That point on data, I think, is is a really interesting one and such a challenge across the industry because Jackie was talking about the different, you know, the different channels and business units that she's managing and talked about how, you know, a customer could be a customer in several different places. But how do you find that the details? I think Richard mentioned that they had 12, was it 12 different platforms when he started? Yeah. And you're thinking yeah. about why do we do this and the challenge of trying to create that integrated data picture for a customer who's at the end of it, right? We're stewards of the customer's money, but we can't even figure out what money the customer has with exactly. us, right? Because there's all those different different systems. And Farzana asked a question about um, about tech and, and referenced my, you know, my, my new favorite toy, chat GPT, that I use far <laughs> too much. Um, and, and Patrick's response, I thought, was really interesting talking about scale. It was, it's gobsmacking, right? The scale. Can you think of a global bank like JP Morgan? $11 billion spending tech. And it's, you know, how does a small financial advice business build the kind of scale to be able to, to compete with those kinds of resource? And it's not that a JP Morgan is competing with a progeny, but at the same time, customers have choice, right? And they can go, they can go anywhere. And I think, you know, you can have a really bespoke, personalized interaction through a financial planning business, but then the tech that you're going to need in the future um, to be able to run a business isn't insignificant. And um, and I, I thought that contrast was was just amazing. And and Neil did reference the challenge of um, scale in and in the financial advice market he referred to that as one of the main reasons that advisors are coming to progeny um, because they recognize that it's difficult for them to invest in the way they need to um, so you're seeing this consolidation of advice firms consolidation of wealth managers consolidation of asset managers you know and where does it where does it end? Right, it's a fascinating. It's totally area. fascinating. And just on that point, um, that eleven billion pounds. Um, I think it was dollars. The dollars, sorry, point that Patrick mentioned. I've been on the other side of that a bit as well with large scale technology. Um, and you have to also ask um, when when a consumer or an advisor or anybody dealing with a large institution starts questioning that 
spend, that amount of spend, I do wonder at what point, uh, because it takes so long to embed some of these things or create some of this um, technology, at what point does that then become out of date? How quickly can they get something when you're spending $11 billion? How quickly can that come to market? And what if the market's changed in that time? So it's actually, you know, these insights are worth debating for the future as well. And I guess that's kind of why, why we're here as well, to be able to to understand the insights, what we hear, what we talk, the way that we talk to people in the industry, but actually start to question and challenge how quickly that can determine a proposition and what it means for the end customer. So I find that fascinating too. Absolutely. So we'll be back next week with episode three of our <laughs> podcast, where we'll be hearing um, Nathan Long's comments on connecting with the customer. Oh, that was a great session. It was a really good session. It'll pick up a lot of the themes that we've been talking about today. So thank you so much, Emma, for sharing your thoughts. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Thank you.